Welcome to the Loved Called Gifted podcast. This is your place to come for musings about spirituality, identity and purpose. I'm your host, Catherine Cowell. This is the third in our series of episodes looking at personality through the lens of the Myers-Briggs model of personality. And if you find this interesting, then you might like to go back and listen to the first two. We did an introduction to Myers-Briggs in episode nine. Myers-Briggs looks at four elements of personality, each of which it divides into two preferences. So we looked at the first of those preference pairs in episode 11 when we talked about introversion and extroversion. And this time we're going to look at a second of those and we're going to explore thinking and feeling. And for this conversation, I am delighted to be joined by my friend and colleague, Sean Kennedy. Hello, Catherine. Good to be here today. Nice to have you. Thank you ever so much for doing this. So, Sean, you're a Myers-Briggs practitioner. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that is and how long you've been doing it? Oh, gosh. So Myers-Briggs, it's really, it's how we be in the world. It's about, you know, where our focus and attention lies. It's about how we take in information. It's about how we make decisions based on the information that we take in. And it's about kind of how we go about putting those decisions into action. That sounds a bit clinical, really, but it's a wonderful tool. I came across it back early 90s, but didn't fully understand it back then. But then I was reintroduced to it probably 2002. I was on a counselling course and I just had this amazing moment with this. I would say it was even quite spiritual because I wasn't feeling too good about myself. And this Myers-Briggs, it just said, you know what? You think quite differently. Your mind works differently to, to the way other people's works. But you know what? it's actually normal. You're okay. So it was just the most wonderful life-affirming moment. And I thought, I've got to learn how to do this because I trained as a Myers-Briggs practitioner. So I've been using it ever since. It's something I probably run through my head at, at some point every day. Yes. You're making me think back to when I was introduced to it, which was in the context of some leadership training when I was working for the NHS. That's quite a long time ago now. And like you, what I found was that it actually helped me to make sense of some of the key differences between myself and other people. Mm. And so it gave me a different window through which both to understand myself and understand what it was that I was offering the world in terms of personality and why that might be different to some of the people around me. Exactly. Yes. And again, you know, the same is true for me. Um, Yeah. Really, really helpful. And saves so many arguments. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think it does. It's a really good peacemaking tool. Yes. So just to be clear, we're not doing Myers-Briggs here exactly. What we're doing is we're using some elements from it. So actually, if somebody was to come and sit down with you as a Myers-Briggs practitioner, then my understanding is that what you would do with them is that you would sit down and help them to understand what their personality type is. And actually, you end up with four letters, but there is something about the way that those letters interact with each other, which gives you quite a rounded sort of view of yourself. 
the sum of the whole is actually much more complex than the sum of the individual parts. Yes. So what we're doing here is that we're sneakily using those individual parts to hopefully give folk a bit of a window into particular aspects of the way that they work and the way that the people around them work. This is not the whole caboodle. And the other thing that I have noticed having worked with you is that quite often people will come on a Myers-Briggs workshop saying, oh, well, I did Myers-Briggs and I can't remember what it was. Or I've done Myers-Briggs and then I did it again and it changed. And quite often what that means is that they've done a quick and dirty questionnaire somewhere and it's come up with a result. But actually that's not the thing which gets you to understand your personality type. It it takes something a bit more in-depth. It really does. It yeah. takes, you know, a Myers-Briggs practitioner to spend a couple of hours at minimum yeah. uh, with you or just a really good book on the subject. Yeah. Yeah, because actually your Myers-Briggs type personality does not change it. It is it's a mm. pretty permanent thing, although it does develop, becomes more nuanced and more flexible. Yes, and we've been talking about that a bit. And the other key principle is the understanding that actually these are preferences. So we all do a bit of both, but we kind of have a home territory that we live from and function from. That's it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. One is preferential to the other. It's like I prefer my, to use my right hand for fiddly jobs, whereas my left hand is not as competent. So one of these will be very competent. Think, thinking will be very com- competent or feeling will be very mm. competent and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get into talking about thinking and feeling then. My slightly simplistic definition of thinking and feeling, which you can flesh out for us in a moment, is that if you are somebody who has a preference for thinking, then that's kind of where you start. We all take in information from the world. We take in emotional information, both the stuff that's going on inside of us and the stuff that's going on with other people. And we take on cognitive information. And if you have a preference for thinking, then you'll do the thinking first. And then you will work out what you feel about something. Mm. If you have a preference for feeling, then you won't know what you think about something until you've worked out what you feel about it. So you're sort of starting with the emotional information, with your beliefs, with your values first, and that's your starting point. So do you want to flesh that out a bit for us then, Sean? Okay. So thinkers have a very much sort of logical cause and effect type thinking. They have a network of of principles, data, which they use to make decisions. So you'll find that they they will tell you what they think. Sometimes they can be be quite blunt. Their focus is very much on the task of a job. They analyze and critique. They can be quite firm and tough-minded. That might sound a bit harsh, but actually they also have a, a big focus on justice and fairness, which is really important to them. They question why. They're always often asking why. They seek logical reasons and they focus on the you know principles and consequences. So that's typically the, the thinker. So whereas the feeler, their decision making comes more from kind of a heart place, heart as opposed to the thinker's head. They operate really on values and beliefs to, to make their decisions. Uh, feeling decisions are harder to put language around them. They like personal approval. They're, they're kind of, feelers are quite sociable creatures. Their focus is on maybe the morale of the team. You know, is everybody okay? Because if everybody's okay, then the, the team will work more effectively. So in a way, the feelers can be the, the oil lubricating the, the inner workings. 
therefore quite empathic, warm-hearted, and as opposed to thinkers focus on justice, the feeler is more focused on mercy and compassion. So for thinkers, they, they want to see that everybody's being treated fairly. Is everybody being given the same things? Are they being given the same opportunities? Whereas the feeler kind of knows that one person in particular needs a bit of extra special attention, which might not seem very fair <laughs> if one person is getting more attention than the others. Yeah, so very much relationship focused. So yeah, that's kind of a, a bit of an overview. Yeah. And one of the reasons that I asked you to join me for this particular conversation is that in terms of Myers-Briggs, this is something which we are opposites on. Mm. So I have a preference for thinking and you have a preference for feeling. And we have worked quite closely together for quite a number of years. And so have kind of experienced sort of working with those differences and both appreciating and I guess occasionally being frustrated with one another, I suspect. Although my sense is that actually bringing those differences has been more helpful than a hindrance. I think that you and I working together, we would have probably had a lot more arguments if it wasn't for knowing this stuff. Because mm. I would be looking at the same things from just from this different feeling side and you'd be looking at it very much from a, from a more logical side. So I think it's in a way it's kept the peace because you, you value my decision making. You might not agree, but you respect my decision making process. Mm. And I very much respect yours as well. And I know that we need to listen to each other. Going back to the kind of the, the sort of differences of seeing something, it very much puts me in mind, I don't know if you remember, quite a number of years ago now, we did a Myers-Briggs workshop for a bunch of people. And within that, there were two individuals, and I think they might even have been husband and wife. So the details are a little bit hazy now, but basically they were both involved in a giving out uniform project to local schools. And there was an opportunity to expand. Mm, and we were, yeah, and we were heading towards kind of a new academic year. And she had a preference for feeling. So her thinking was, I know that there are people struggling with their finances. I know that there are lots of people in other schools nearby to us, nearby to where we are doing our charitable thing. All of those kids could, could do with new shoes. We've got an opportunity to do new shoes for people. I reckon that we can do this. And so we need to get on with this now because I'm thinking about what it's like for those mothers and those kids who are heading towards a new term and they haven't got new shoes. They're in need, they're in need, they're in need. Yes, we need to sort it out. Just imagine how difficult it is yeah. for them. We need to go for it and we will have the vision and we'll sort it. And this was very heartfelt. Oh, completely heartfelt. <laughs> His view was, well, actually, we don't have enough data to do this yet and we haven't quite got the resources yet and we need to make sure that we have because we need to work out how many pairs of shoes we might be handing out. We need to work out how we're going to do the distribution, how we're going to get our volunteers on board with this, where we're going to get the funds from exactly. Where are we going to store the stuff? Where are we going to store? Yeah, all of all of those things because his view was that he really didn't want them to set off and start doing this if they hadn't got the I's dotted and the T's crossed and they didn't know that they were going to be able to deliver because if they made a promise that they were going to deliver this stuff and then they couldn't, then that would be disastrous. <laughs> it wouldn't be, well, in, in your language, it wouldn't be fair. Like if we've given our word, we need to do it. And so there was this kind of debate going on because she's saying, but they need the shoes. And I had a conversation last week with this mum and it broke my heart because she can't afford to send her kids to school in yeah. shoes. And, and he's like, yeah, but, 
we we can't do this big expansion <laughs> until we've worked it out logically. <laughs> and we needed to have a sit down and have a good conversation with them about that because it was it was really really interesting. It's just classic example of of yes. this thinking feeling dichotomy from her perspective. Whilst they're in the middle of the disagreement, from her perspective, he's being cold hearted. From yes. his perspective, she's being illogical. Yes. Yeah. And actually what you need is both of those they things. They were both right. Yeah. They, they were both right. But and bringing his logic together with her heart, actually, when they did this, it worked. It was great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And both of those things together work, work mm. really well. But it, it's about understanding. Because I think if, you, if you're not aware that the person you're working with is coming from a different perspective, yeah. then you think that they're doing a bad job of what comes naturally to you. So she was doing a really bad job of being logical. Yes. <laughs> and he was doing a really bad job of being compassionate. He wasn't cold at all, but now I particularly appreciates his wife's approach and that, yeah. Yeah. The other example that comes to mind is of a, a company that we did some work for in London. And again, she had a preference for feeling. He had a preference for thinking. She was sort of running the company. He was her second in command. And he felt that one of the contributions that he could make was helping her to understand how things could run better and picking out the things which he felt needed addressing or needed looking at differently. And so he would, with great good feeling, he would give her these very careful analyses of what was going on. But I think one of the things about people with a preference for feeling is that it's harder to separate out criticism because everything goes through that kind of sense of feelings and values. If somebody criticises you, then you work out what you feel about that first and what you feel about mm. it is, this is criticising me and this hurts. Yes. Yeah. So the feeler will take feedback quite a bit more personally, whereas the thinker will go, okay, yep, I can see the, the logic behind that. I'll straighten that out. Yeah. So, so critique is, uh, yeah, it, it's taken harder by the feeler. Yes. So he was feeling that all of the work that he was doing, she was not appreciating. From her perspective, he was constantly undermining it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I remember we came up together in a conversation between the four of us. We came up together with this analogy of, what this was like. Is this, is this the Robin analogy? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It felt to her, when, it felt to her like when your cat very lovingly brings you a dead bird. You know, a a like, gift, yes. <laughs> which is not really a gift, is it? <laughs> but it is from the cat's point of view. Yeah. The cat has gone out and found it. For yeah, it. No, it just took effort. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's no mean feet going out. Personally in- chosen. Yes. <laughs> Personally <Stalking>. selected. <laughs> Stalked. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, you go out and you stalk your robin and you, <laughs> you bring it back. Um, yeah. But that sort of helped to give them a bit of perspective in terms of, in terms of what they were both offering to the dynamic. And again, he wasn't intending to be personal. From his perspective, he was simply looking at what the business needed. I think she was taking this, all these little things and big things, and interpreting it through her, her feelings mm. and values. I'm a bad person. I'm a bad businesswoman. Or at least you think I'm a bad businesswoman. At least you think I, yeah. I am. So, I mean, her, from what I remember, I mean, she uh, created this beautiful 
environment, many ways quite ahead of our time, but just created this lovely warm environment. There were flowers and nice fabrics and things in in the building, in the work workspace. You know, tea, coffee, cake, and all of that. And her focus really on the morale of the team, or mm. he was so focused on what are we doing? Why are we doing it? You know, where is this? Where is all this going? Where will this fall over? Yeah. So I think... Interestingly, the other thing which was clear in that context is she was very happy to mix work and personal. So she created a workspace that she also lived above, but she was very happy to have her kitchen in. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was all about everything is kind of together and everybody is welcome into my, into my space. And I'm not just welcoming you into the office, I'm welcoming you into my home. We can have parties here, we can eat together. Yeah, they did, yeah. And they did all of those sorts of things. But from his perspective, I think it's more of a thinking thing to very much value, not all people with a preference for thinking, but and and I think this would work both ways, but certainly for her, that kind of everything together, I think was part of her preference for feeling. Yeah. And part of his preference for thinking meant that he wanted to separate things out. He wasn't necessarily that interested in having a personal friendship. I remember a conversation with him, him saying to me, I really wish that we could have more of a separation between personal and business. <laughs> and I said, I'm not sure how much chance you think you've got of that. She has her wardrobe <laughs> <laughs> in the office. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're using these, we're almost stereotyping people mm. here uh, a little bit too much because, you know, to, to be fair, they were they were a bit of both, but I think yeah. that's a really good example. And they learned, you know, from that to to very much appreciate each other and and and, and value the other person's uh, thinking processes. Yeah. In terms of our relationship with one another, some of the things that I've noticed is that we both tend to do our respective end of the spectrum really quite efficiently and quickly mm. and are a bit slower at the other. Yeah. So there have been quite a number of times, for example, when I have, we've been meeting together and I've turned up and you've said, what's wrong? And my response is, oh, there's anything wrong. But if I stopped and thought about it, actually there was there was difficult emotions going on inside of me that I, I, I simply hadn't even noticed were there. <laughs> Yes. There's a sort of slight spookiness when the person the person who is not you has worked out what you're feeling before you have. Mm. But that kind of speed of intuition. And then on the other side of that, there have been quite a number of times when we've had conversations and I have been able to sort of logically slice and dice something that was feeling for you like a bit of a fuzzy muddle. Yes. Yeah. yeah which you're really, really good at. I do scan faces and really notice. Again, it's just about mm. my focus on the morale, you know, because if Kath is feeling good about this, about herself, then whatever we're doing together is going to work better. Whereas your <laughs> your your focus is is on the on the task, which I need. I I really do. Yeah, yeah, and I think I have learned over the years that it is important to do the personal bit and not just the task bit. So I know that things will go better, particularly if I know, for example, that I'm communicating with somebody who has a preference for feeling. 
the email or the text that I send is going to work a lot better if I have deliberately sort of stepped into the, okay, well, relationship is important. So let me do the relational bit Mm. first. Whereas my instinct, my natural instinct would be, right, okay, I'm going through my list of things. I need to ask you about that. So I will email you and say, what do you think about this? Um, End of email kind of thing. Whereas actually I know that that is going to come across extremely cold somebody yeah this this sort of emails can really grate on me i've got a a lady that sends me these very logical uh, emails and actually if you if you um if you made a judgment on her based on those you you'd be really judging her wrongly because obviously Mm. when you 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 meet her she does have a preference for thinking but actually she's really personable and friendly and warm yeah i the other thing that i have noticed about people with a preference for feeling is that if there is something to think through then they generally need a little bit longer to do it oh yes absolutely so for example i've i've had this conversation with a number of people with a preference for feeling where we've been talking and it's been clear that they sometimes find themselves in situations with colleagues or sometimes with family members where they end up in the context of a conversation feeling a bit thick because the people that they're talking to, if those people have a preference for feeling, just seem to be getting it in inverted commas much quicker than they are. And actually to be able to say, it's not that you're not getting it. It's not that you can't do the logic. It's just that you are going through your your emotions and your values mm-hmm. and your beliefs first. It's kind of the information is going through your heart before it gets to your head, if you're going to put it in simple terms. Whereas for the thinker, it's going straight in the brain and we'll, we'll process it, thank you. Yeah, and this is what I love about this particular dimension. It is true. I mean, as a child growing up, living in a household that was very thinking, I would have certain values and beliefs about things but if i were to give an opinion i, I would somehow in, in order for it to fly which it seldom did <laughs> i'd have to translate this feeling language somehow into this thinking language something more logical because if you ask me sean what are your top five values and beliefs i don't know uh, i i, I kind of do they are they are very you know they're very there but I'm really struggling to put that into words just rapidly what that value is. So it's like I'm like my first language is Polish and I'm having to translate everything into English. Hmm. Um, but I learned well, you know, I became, I actually did, did, uh, did an engineering degree and did, did really quite well at that. And that really taught me kind of a lot more logical thinking. So I can, you know, I'm very good at both, but it just, I do, I do need a bit more time. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say on the other end of that, I need a bit more time to process the emotional stuff or not necessarily more time, but definitely more effort and more conscious thought. Mm -hmm. And I have become better, I think, over the years at at processing emotion and noticing Mm -hmm. it in other people. Oh, you have. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that happens as we grow older is that actually we kind of grow into our opposite side a bit more 
So, yes. so you yeah. get more adept at it. Yes. But I do know that quite often the way that I process emotion is that I use my logic to do it. So I will look at what's happening for somebody. I will scan kind of what's happening with your body language and your facial expression and what's going on or what's happening in your life and what logically might be going on mm. for you. And actually that works all right. So I might not have an immediate intuitive sense of how you're feeling, but I can have a flipping good logical guess at how you might be feeling. You might produce some logical questions to ask me about, whereas for me, I know I might not quite be able to verbalise why I know. I, I know because I know. So it's very instinctual, whereas yours is, it's not automatic. You've studied this stuff mm. and you can say why you think that person is, is feeling that way. Yeah, and it's very heartfelt. It's not that there is no emotion yeah. in it. It's it's very heartfelt, but it's not that I process that emotion immediately. No. Which I think brings me to one of the misconceptions that there can be between people who have a preference for thinking and people with a preference for feeling. I think that sometimes I would be regarded as in the camp of people who don't do empathy. And I don't think that that's true at all. Oh, no. I mean, you are one of the most empathic people I know that I've come across who has a thinking preference. Mm. Yeah, you've really learned. You've learned it. Is that the right word for you? I think some of it is learned and some of it is that thing that happens... Myers-Briggs has this concept of being in the grip that sometimes you get to a point where there is kind of a crisis. Mm. You go from doing your ordinary thing to an extreme degree because you need to be in your safely in your home territory. And then if the stress continues, you kind of flip into doing a bad version of the opposite. But quite mm. often in the context of that, there is some there is some personal growth that happens. So I knew that there have been some key moments in my life where there have been really difficult things that have gone on that have been very demanding and stressful and hard. But I know that my emotional growth has come partly out of those things. So when my ex-husband was ill, he had a brain tumour, he was in hospital, that was a really difficult time. And I remember suddenly having a moment of empathy in a management meeting. I was working in a hospital and they were doing the no smoking thing. So they were wanting to go from having smoking shelters in the hospital grounds to sending people completely outside of the hospital grounds if they wanted a cigarette. And I was just incensed. I mean, I don't mm. smoke, mm. but I'm thinking, but these people are at a moment of crisis and you want them in that moment of crisis when the thing that helps them is having a cigarette, you want them to walk a quarter of a mile <laughs> or you want them to be without that? I And I was, I was just... <laughs> yeah, so you, this was kind of your introverted feeling, just leaping to the surface. It was. And because I knew I was in a management meeting and I couldn't flip my lid, I kept that somewhat under control. Yes. But I was absolutely incensed on behalf of these strangers I don't know who might want a cigarette. So <laughs> so, so in your normal everyday, you know, going about the business, what what would that have what would that have done? I think I might have done the logical, well, I think that's a bit rough, isn't it? You know, this is not the moment to ask somebody to give up cigarettes. You know, I, <laughs> yeah. I think what struck me was the extent to which it hit me in my heart. Like it hurt. It's like, I'm really feeling this for these people. And I think I noticed through that, living through that experience of Andy's illness, I noticed a softening that happened in me. 
And similarly, I had a miscarriage. We couldn't have kids. I went through the experience of childlessness and all of that. And walking through those things, I think, has grown my feeling side because I've kind of been confronted with my feelings in those moments. After that, I'm more able to access them than I had been previously. It's interesting that I'm introvert, you know, when you were saying that story, I was going to myself, you know, quite right, send them out, out the gate to, to have a smoke because, you know, there's something values-based going on there. It's a little bit hard to put into logic very quickly <laughs> to yeah. translate. So, so I, I, but actually that could have seemed a little bit less compassionate to you at the time. Yeah, possibly. Curious. Yeah, it is. It is. It's interesting. The other thing I would say on the empathy side is that actually quite often it is easier to work in situations where a lot of empathy is required sometimes if you have a preference for thinking because you're just slightly more distanced from it. Mm. So that ability that people with a preference for feeling have of looking at a situation from a slightly more detached perspective. Yes, so stepping outside of it rather than kind of stepping into it. I think that's a key difference, isn't it? If you have a preference for feeling, then you will step into a situation and into somebody else's shoes. Whereas oh, yeah. if you have a preference for thinking, you will understand it by stepping back from it and surveying it, which gives you different perspectives. Oh, gosh. But I remember, I remember my mum saying years ago, she said at one point she did a bit of nursing in a children's ward. She was a nurse. She did a bit of nursing in a children's ward at one point. She said, I could not. I knew I couldn't do paediatrics because she just felt too much for the kids who were there. Mm. Whereas actually, if you're a bit more, if you're able to be a bit more detached, then you can do the logical, well, I know this is difficult, but it will benefit you in the end. So I'm prepared to put you through it in a way that, if you're absolutely feeling it, that becomes very hard. So it really it has its uses. I, actually, I probably want my surgeon in general. You know, I'm sure there are, there are absolutely brilliant, brilliant, brilliant feeling surgeons. But actually, I do want that detached thinking surgeon who really, really knows his stuff who doesn't get overly emotionally involved in me and knows exactly what to do. And I, I also think it's quite important not to overgeneralise between yeah, people. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a generalisation. We don't want to make no. too many generalisations here. But. And I do know people with a preference for feeling who do seem to be able to do that objective thing, who are naturally drawn towards caring professions and caring situations and kind of bring their heart into it, but do seem to be able to be reasonably matter-of-fact about things. Mm. I mean, I started out as an engineer, which obviously requires a lot of thinking yeah. logic. And I was good at it. Yeah, I was good. You know, I was offered PhDs at the end. But I, after several years in the engineering industry, you know, I just always struggled with my, I, I did struggle with. Mm. And when I went to work in the university, I, I really struggled during the student holidays. When the students weren't around, I really suffered because I was just dealing with, with things and stuff. Mm. Whereas when the students were there, I got to talk to them. They had problems and issues to, to sort out. So there was that interaction and that really led me to to decide actually i need people yeah. whatever i'm do, do from now on in life it needs to be 
people. I need to be working with people problems because I just wasn't cutting it, I felt, as an engineer. I, I was good. I could have stayed, but I'd made the right choice. Yeah, yeah. I wonder whether getting the Myers-Briggs information and understanding that there were two preferences, thinking and feeling, and that you were in the feeling camp actually enabled you to look back on sort of the logic that you were doing and understand why sometimes it didn't quite feel like it fitted. Rather than thinking, I'm a bit bad at this logic, it's kind of like, ah, right, okay, so I process this information slightly differently to other people. Hmm. It's, it's, yeah, it's like my left and right hand. It's not first nature. I'm good at it. I'm good at using my left hand. Hmm. Better at using my right hand. Yes. The other thing that occurs to me as we've been talking is that there are some interesting bits of thinking around differences between men and women in terms of how society sees us. So society expects women to have a preference for feeling and expects men to have a preference for thinking. And that's very kind of stereotypical, but I think there is an element of being masculine Mm. culturally looks more like thinking whereas being feminine culturally looks more like feeling. And certainly growing up, I felt that I didn't really quite fit the female feminine mould in the way that other people seemed to. And I didn't fit the the typical male rule Mm. either because of my preference for, for feeling. Yeah, this bothered me. But actually the data, and it does date back, to the late 90s, roughly two-thirds of women have a preference for feeling, Mm. uh, one-third preference for thinking. It's the other way around for men. So roughly uh, two-thirds of men have a preference for thinking, one-third preference for feeling. I think the last time I looked at the figures, it was a 30-70 split for the women, but actually less of a split for the blokes. So it's more 40-60 for the blokes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm just... Which is interesting, because if, if you were in a perfectly average room of 10 blokes, you would be amongst four of them with a preference for feeling. Mm. But being in that room where everybody is aware of what the cultural norms are for blokes, I think it'd be very easy for you to feel that you might be kind of by yourself as somebody with a mm. preference for feeling, when in actual fact, you're absolutely not. I'm more comfortable, actually, with a group of women, because I'll talk about relationships and things like that more whereas what men talk about i i maybe struggle a bit more more with that that can be misinterpreted <laughs> i'm looking for a date or something like that when i'm happily married <laughs> but yeah it's, it's interesting that because i definitely sought out male friendships when i was younger mm. because i just found them more straightforward It just felt that there was less kind of complexity to negotiate. I could just talk about something interesting without having to be expected to do small talk. Yeah. And without worrying so much about the kind of the relational dynamics. And there are all sorts of other reasons for that as well, but Mm -hmm. that's interesting. Which leads the opposite. Yeah. Which leads me to think about just briefly as we begin to wind this up, the way in which we grow into our opposite. And when I look back to the Catherine in her 20s, she was a lot, she was a lot more aloof, I think, Mm -hmm. a lot less warm, probably, Mm -hmm. a lot more kind of 
obviously intellectual. I was also a lot more introvert, but that's a different that's a different set of things. Whereas I think I am more naturally emotional and intuitive and kind mm. of value driven now than I was sort of thirty years ago. And I wonder I wonder if you look back to the Sean age of twenty five, what would be different in terms of this? I think as a feeler, I was pretty good at a lot of thinking already just because of the family that I grew mm. up, which very much insisted that that I give logical responses. I think the engineering as well. But I think there was a lot of friction there, you know, and I probably got into more arguments back then, you know, and I would come and tackle things from, from quite an emotional uh, point of view. Mm. But now, and I think becoming a coach is also given me lots of logical questions to to unpack things. So thinking doesn't grate on me the way it used to. Yeah. And I, so I really appreciate my thinking friends. If I've got a problem and my emotions are getting in the way, I will go and, well, I'll talk to you or yeah. one of a number of other people and get them to slice and dice. And sometimes, you know, I just need a blunt opinion. <laughs> you know, there's a value and, you know, bluntness would, would really grate on me in the past, but now I, I kind of, you know, you know where you stand with your thinking friends, <laughs> you know, if you're trying on, <laughs> I don't normally try on dresses, but if you're trying on dresses and you've got a thinking friend and a feeling friend. This is an aspect of your life I was unaware of. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> but the thinking friend's going to say, no, you look fat in that. <laughs> Whereas the, the feeling friend might say, well, um, I like I like what you're wearing, but um, uh, have a look at this dress instead. <laughs> this might suit you a bit better. So Yeah, so you'll get, a, you'll get a kind of a clearer, more obvious. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. We've covered quite a lot there. Yeah. So thank you ever so much for joining me for this conversation, Sean. Lovely to be here. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Loved Called Gifted podcast. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email lovedcalledgifted at gmail.com. You can find a transcript of this podcast at lovedcalledgifted.com. And that's also the place to go if you're interested in the Loved Called Gifted course, or if you'd like to find out about spiritual direction or coaching. Thank you for listening.